Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast and welcome to 2021. This is our first podcast of the year. There are just two days until Congress does something, counts the Electoral College votes, 16 days until the inauguration of Joe Biden. I have a sense that this, this will be a 16 days that will challenge us. This is a stress test for America. And so uh, as I was preparing for the podcast this morning, my wife says, who do you have on? And I said, uh, Quinton Jurassic. I'm really in the mood for Quinton Jurassic this morning which in a different context would be disturbing to say something like that. Don't you think so? I'm sorry. I just wanted to give you the backstory, Quinta. Well, I'm I'm honored to be the first guest of 2021. Managing editor of Lawfare. You are the first guest of 2021, which is already shaping up to possibly be worse than 2020. So we have to talk about the most important story of the day, of course, which is the, the story that uh, the president is going to be giving the Medal of Freedom to uh, Congressman Devin Nunes. This is not a parody. See, this is the problem. That we're living in a world in which it's hard to come up with parodies because the absurdity is so much. So when you hear that, you go, and what's he going to do next week? Give it to Jim Jordan? And the answer is yes. Yeah. So I don't know. Does this ruin the Medal of Freedom? Should we just say, okay, it's obviously been so besmirched. It doesn't mean anything. You know, it's like, it's it's like, what would it be like if, if, if they'd handed out, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize to... Who? What would be the most absurd person in the world other than Donald Trump? So, I was going to suggest Donald Trump. So have they ruined the Medal of Freedom or, or, or should Joe Biden come in and say, you know what? Um, it was one of my first acts. I'm going to give the Medal of Freedom to um, Alexander Vindman or something like that. Just some just, you know, find a way to wash the stink off of it. It's an interesting question. And I do think uh, washing the stink off of it is uh, a good way to phrase it. Whatever the right answer is of of how Biden should go about that, I do think that you're you're right that there are so many sort of civic traditions that have been perverted or distorted or whatever you want to call it under Trump. And Biden, among all the other things that he's going to have to do, is going to face the task of sort of deciding what it means to move past Trump's or to address Trump's distortion of those traditions, whether that means, you know, throwing out the Medal of Honor and starting over or self-consciously picking recipients who are uh, not in the lineage of recipients who Trump chose to bestow the medal to. But I do think that uh, it it has to be something that they're going to be considering at this point, especially given that the, the medal has now gone to any number of uh, unlikely recipients including rush limbaugh okay so we're going to get to uh to the tape the what we learned from this this amazing tape but you don't know what to start run something by you because i'm one of the people who has been saying that uh you know predicting from the beginning that this entire thing was going to go right up to january 6th that president trump would never concede that he would do everything possible to delegitimize the election that he would that he would, um, you know, always insist that he had not been defeated, that it had been stolen from him, and that uh, there would be this sort of chaos. So having said that and having predicted it and having written many times that, you know, that 78 days between the election and January 20th, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be dangerous. This may be the most dangerous period of the Trump administration. But having said that, I have to say this last weekend was shocking to me. So I did a podcast last week with Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. And at one point during the podcast, we were talking about how many people would join in this, this, you know, the, the Kraken 
coup caucus in, in the House of Representatives vote to object to the, and I said, a few dozen, will it be 20, 30? He said, no, it's going to be, it'll be, it'll be like 100. And within 24 hours, that grew to 140. And then, of course, you had, you know, not just Josh Hawley, but you had Ted Cruz, who is in this sort of, you know, uh, you know, cage mass of match of who's the biggest, you know, asshole in, in, in the Senate. Uh, he comes forward with 11 members of the Senate. So you have 12 Republican senators, maybe 140 uh, members of the House. But I got to tell you, Quinta, th th this felt like a gut punch, even though I kind of knew it was going to happen. And in many ways, it plays out everything that's been happening. But to think that that many Republicans would sign on to a vote to reject the votes of millions of Americans, I mean, I, I, I don't think of myself as naive, but that was a shock on, on Saturday. And it felt like it was kind of a shock to the political system. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think there was a reaction over the last 24, 48 hours. There was a backlash. You had Paul Ryan come out. You have Liv Cheney come out. Liz Cheney come out. You know, Ben Sass, Pat Toomey, Tom Cotton. A lot of folks coming out of the woodwork. So just give me your sense of, of how this weekend played out and whether it has changed the trajectory or the momentum of what's happening now? One of the puzzling things for me, at least as someone who's been a journalist writing about the Trump administration and sort of what it's done to the country is that it, it reminds me of those sort of visual or auditory tricks. I don't know if you've ever heard one, but it's essentially you listen to what sounds like a series of tones that are moving up in pitch, but it right. actually is, it just keeps looping. So somehow you're ascending, but going back to the bottom um, over and over again. Um, or, you know, the MC Escher drawings of mm -hmm. climbing stairs and you just keep going around and around that the sort of predations and abuses seem to keep getting more and more egregious and the complicity and enabling of the Republican Party seems to be getting more and more egregious. And yet, in another sense, it's exactly what we've been saying all right. along, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> that, you know, the the call with Raffensperger, which we'll talk about shortly, and the sort of the enthusiasm of the Republican caucus in backing Trump's effort to overturn an election is very much the same, I would argue, as what we have seen throughout Trump's presidency. You can compare it to uh, Trump's defenders in the House during the impeachment uh, process and all of the senators who voted against removing him from office. You can compare it to the sustained Republican support in Congress during the Mueller investigation. I, I was really struck by there's a, a quote given by an anonymous official to the Washington Post that's been popping up mm -hmm. a lot recently at the beginning of this sort of effort to overturn the election that more or less says, you know, we are all we're all thinking, like, what's the harm in letting him have right. his fun? Um, and on the one hand, you look at that and you say, I mean, we know what the harm is. We're seeing it right now. And it's egregious that people are thinking like that. But on the other hand, you could plop that quote into, you know, any piece of reporting from the Times or the Post about any one of Trump's many, many abuses of power over the last four years, and it would fit just as well. Um, so it's both shocking and completely unsurprising. And I think that's one of the difficulties in 
discussing it and talking about it. No, I, I like the image of the of the MC Escher because you, you feel like you've been here before. You know what the thing is, but it's still completely surreal. OK, so l- l- let me just throw out the, the one thing that seems to be slightly new. Um, we've seen all the Republicans go in lockstep behind Donald Trump. We saw that with impeachment, with the exception of, of Mitt Romney. You know, we've seen that on one issue after another. But this 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 is a civil war right now. Um, between, and again, I don't want to call the, the people who are pushing the coup conservatives because there's nothing conservative about essentially saying that Congress should override the votes of a state, uh, you know, of the states in, in the presidential election. But you, you see this breakdown it's, you have, you know, Cruz and Holly on one side, and then you have people like, you know, Tom Cotton, um, or Ben Sass and Pat Toomey. And it doesn't it doesn't break down on traditional right left lines. It's not like one side is more right wing. You know, a lot of it is the people who are completely invested in in running in 2024 think that this is the way, you know, Josh Hawley stepped out and said, hey, you know, I'm I'm the biggest Trumpist in in, in the Senate. And, you know, Ted Cruz said, you know, wait, hold my beer. Um, but you are now seeing other Republicans pushing back very forcefully against this in a way that we haven't. I mean, so Paul Ryan sat on the on the sidelines for how long? And he comes out with a very strong statement. Um, Tom Cotton has carried water for uh, Donald Trump for four years. Lindsey Graham, you know, has been has been the ultimate, you know, Uriah Heap sycophant. He's not he's not signing on. So something something is happening has happened over the last 24, 48 hours where you are seeing Republicans breaking. And this is also something we haven't seen under Mitch McConnell. This doesn't usually happen to Mitch McConnell because he has usually this iron control over his caucus. And now it is, it is blown up. I think there are a couple different points there that are worth pulling apart. So the first point on McConnell, I'd first off, I'd I'd welcome anyone who knows more about a congressional procedure than, than me may be able to, uh, correct me here, but I I do wonder if part of the reason why McConnell's control over his caucus has splintered here is because of the specific rules under which Congress will be counting the electoral votes on Wednesday. My understanding um, is that if there is an objection from senators, as Holly plans to object, that Congress then has to split into both chambers right. and, and debate. debate the motion. Right. So that McConnell doesn't have the same sort of iron fisted control over what happens on the floor as he does usually. Um, and you can see how that's uh, led the Josh Hollies of the world to sort of go their own way. Um, so that's one point. The other point is it's interesting that you are grouping uh, Republican senators like Cotton on the one hand with sort of, you know, Toomey on the other. I think that because I was struck by when Cotton came out uh, against this, I was surprised. I was too. I, I confessed I, I thought that Mr. Send in the Troops would be uh, mm-hmm. very in favor. Um, but one way to think about it might be that there is a divide between Republicans who are supporting this gambit and Republicans who aren't. But there is another axis from Republicans who are acting out of principle and Republicans who are acting out of ambition. And what I mean by that is I think that some of Trump's supporters um, in Congress really, really believe that he has genuinely won the election. There was terrible voter fraud, yada, 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 you know, um, 
And it's their constitutional duty to sort of make this last stand. Um, I was amused to uh, see uh, Olivia Nizzi at New York Magazine uh, publish a quote from someone saying that uh, Hawley's Republican colleagues in the Senate were irritated at him because he knows better. Um, yeah, he's not Louis he, Gomer. He's not Louis Gomer. Yeah. Exactly. So I think we can put Gomer in the bucket of people who at some level really believe this. Um, and then there are people like Cruz and Hawley who have to know better um, are sort of the elite of the elite of the elite of the legal profession, both clerked on the Supreme Court and are running with this because, as you say, they seem to believe that it will give political benefits to presumably their runs for president in 2024. Then on the other side, I think you can also draw that um, ambition to principal access among Republicans who are opposing this gambit, right? So Republicans like uh, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, uh, really do seem to be deeply offended by uh, this effort. Um, and perhaps we can put outside the Senate, but Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State right. of Georgia there as well. And then there are also Republicans who I don't believe for a second hold a deep commitment to American democracy. And I put Tom Cotton there, given mm -hmm. how much he's enabled Trump. Um, but for whatever reason, have decided that their ambition is pushing them in the opposite direction. Cotton, for example, might be saying to himself, okay, well, you know, if Trump runs in 2024, I'm not going to win anyway. But if he doesn't run, then I can distinguish myself from Hawley and Cruz by having not supported this and haven't taken, you know, a constitutional conservative approach or something like that. So I think that that, that sort of additional access might be helpful in sorting um, how people yeah. are responding to this. No, I, I, and, I, and I think you're right. Um, I, I'm also, you, you mentioned you were surprised by, by Cotton. I was, I was also surprised by, um, uh, by that. There's also, but also this group of uh, conservative congressmen led by Thomas Massey. I mean, it's kind of a grab bag, Ken Buck, uh, Nancy Mace, Tom McClintock, uh, Chip Roy of Texas. And, and, what what really strikes me is that some of these folks actually do seem to be genuinely concerned about the terrible precedent it sets. You know that they basically are saying, "Look, this is a fundamentally unconstitutional act. Uh, the Constitution gives Congress no power to do this. This would also set a terrible precedent. It violates every one of the things we've said about the relationship of the federal government to the state government." Liz Cheney, number three, uh, you know, uh, Republican in the House of Representatives, issued this twenty-one page memorandum that just completely eviscerates any constitutional argument in favor of all of this. So you do have a, a really serious back and forth. And, and really, I, I spent some time reading, you know, some of the things they had written. And I was really struck by the difference of the folks who are writing about constitutional precedents, about the rule of law, about the importance of, of not having the federal government, um, you know, override the states, uh, what this would, that this essentially means that you would have Congress, the majority of members of Congress choose the president of the United States, regardless of the popular vote of the electoral college vote. And then in contrast, you get the you know some of the you know people who've lined up with with Ted Cruz and and uh, and uh, Mo Brooks and the Louis Gomerts of the world, who are essentially arguing that well because questions have been raised and people's feelings are hurt, we need to ask questions. They don't allege anything. the The precedents they cite are incredibly weak. It really is all about 
we're going to show our loyalty to, to, to Trumpism. So this, this, this divide is going to, is going to break out. So I don't know what's going to happen on, on Thursday. Okay. So listen, I want to get into this, uh, with, with you, um, the call. Um, so on Saturday, it looks like the Republicans were rushing like lemmings to, to jump on all of this. There started to be a backlash. And then sometime yesterday, the Washington post releases this story. And then later the entire, audio of this remarkable phone call between Donald Trump and some of his lawyers. And I want to talk about the fact that the role of the lawyers as well. And Mark Meadows was there and they're calling Brad Raffensperger, who is the secretary of state in Georgia and his, his attorney before I play this, we don't know how many other calls there have been, whether Trump is sitting there and he's, he's making phone calls to state officials all around the country, legislators around the country, but we do know what he said on Saturday. And here's a soundbite. You know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And, and, you know, you can't let that happen. That's, that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyers. That's a big risk. But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard. And they are removing machinery uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can both of which are criminal fines and you can't let it happen and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. Mm. So look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have because we won the state. So that's the president of the United States threatening and bullying uh, the secretary of state of Georgia and saying that he wants him to find a specific number of votes. Um, actually, Quinta, we have an enhanced version of this as well. Let's play a little bit of this. Based on all of this. And there's, there's nothing wrong with, with saying that, Brad. You know, I mean, having, the, having a correct, the people of Georgia are angry. And these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. This, now, of course, is the theme to the Godfather. that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because... That's what the rumor okay, is. Okay, okay, that's, that's enough. We don't, we, we don't need any more of all of this. So if they, if they move the inner parts of the machine, this is straight out of QAnon. So here, here's the thing, Quinta. I'm listening to that, and of course, he, he does sound like you know something out of The Sopranos or The Godfather, so he's a gangster. But, you know, that also kind of misses the point. Is if you listen to him, if you actually listen to that whole hour-long conversation, you have to come to the conversation. This guy is delusional. I mean, he is nuts. He is throwing, and he is absolutely immune to information. I mean, he has built a wall of denial, and he just is spewing this crazy bullshit again and again and again. And the guys from Georgia are very patiently saying, "No, that's just not true. That didn't happen. That didn't happen." So, your your thoughts, having read and or listened to the president trying to trying to basically steal the election in Georgia? Um, I'll confess to have not closely uh, parsed. The uh, the legal questions here, but the New York Times has what I think is a, a really useful overview of uh, 
the criminal legal liability that Trump may have potentially exposed himself to, um, both on the federal and the state level, in terms of interfering with the process of an election. Um, And what the experts at the time spoke to point out is that Trump may well have potentially violated criminal law here, but it's far from obvious that there is a prosecutable case uh, for a lot of the same reasons that you run into in the Mueller investigation, right? You have to prove his state of mind. uh, And then there's the sort of pragmatic question of, you know, are you really going to bring a case against a former president? Um, So that, I think, is one thing to keep in mind. But as to whether it's impeachable, absolutely. I mean, if you go back and look at the articles of impeachment against Trump uh, from the Ukraine scandal, you'll see that one of the things that it uh, that Congress held against him was that he'd violated his oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and to faithfully execute the duties of his office. Uh, and I think that's exactly what you see in his conversation with Raffensperger. Um, you know, tr- I would argue that Trump has carried out any number of impeachable offenses uh, over the course of his presidency, both in public and private. And some of them are a harder sell than others. But this is really a slam dunk. Uh, that's separate from the question of whether Congress will or should right. attempt to actually impeach him, of course. But if they run to, I, I think that it would be an easy case to make. Yeah, I, I, I understand that it's incredibly impractical to do it at this point. Uh, my only argument has been that uh, maybe they should at least have it in their back pocket so that if things get really out of control, they can break the glass. Because at this point, what what are the, the, the checks and balances on this guy? Because not only is, is the president thoroughly corrupt and crazy, but it's very clear to me that he is prepared to do just about anything. So speaking of which, I want to come back. I'll come back to the Georgia call in, in just a minute. But what do you make of the fact that 10 living secretaries of defense signed a letter about the role of the military and uh, the peaceful transfer of power? I mean, this is a good thing, but I guess it's like, what what did they hear? What did they see that made them think that it was necessary? We're talking about James Mattis. We're talking about Mark Esper. We're talking about Dick Cheney, uh, you know, Donald Rumsfeld. And they all got together and wrote, and just let me quote from it, civilian and military officials who direct or carry out such measures would be accountable, including potentially facing criminal penalties for the grave consequences of their actions on our republic. David Frum actually asked this question. He said, okay, so this is a good thing, but it causes him to wonder, is Trump been making calls um, to generals or other officials in the Department of Defense that led them to think that this was necessary to do? It's a good question. Um, And I think reading that article, you sort of inevitably get a bit alarmed. Um, I would say the Post had a really useful, I think, um, overview of what led the op-ed to be written. Um, And apparently it was actually, it was sparked by uh, none none other than Dick Cheney, which is sort of notable. Um, Yeah. Um, But what the Post said is that uh, Chuck Hagel, who was one of Obama's secretaries of defense, um, apparently was unsure whether or not he wanted to sign it because he thought it might be a potential overreaction. Um, but then decided that it was worthwhile because of the potential threat. And I think that's really useful. Um, And the way that I've been thinking about this is in the language of what my colleague at Lawfare, Jack Goldsmith, calls libertarian panic, uh, which is this idea that we've sort of seen this cycle over the course of Trump where we have uh, 
you know, Trump sort of floats that he'll commit some terrible abuse of power. Everyone freaks out and writes about how terrible that would be. Um, and then as a result, Trump doesn't commit that abuse of power. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he never would have committed that abuse. In fact, it might mean that the sort of panicked reaction to the proposed abuse is what kept that abuse from happening at all. And so I think that the fact that these secretaries of defense are writing in the post doesn't mean that, you know, Trump's going to roll out tanks or something like that. But the fact that they're pushing back so strongly before it even happens might help prevent it from happening at all. Yeah, it's important to draw the line, you know, to make it very clear, we are not going to do this, this cannot happen, um, makes it less likely to happen. Because I mean, there, there's real, there's a lot of evidence of real confusion over the Department of Defense, you know, in, in, including what we're doing with aircraft carriers in the Middle East, you know, we're moving them, we're sending them back, whatever is, is going on here. But speaking of this thing of the, this whole point of libertarian panic, I, I, was, I had a kind of a moment of panic when I was listening to this this call and between the president and Brad Raffensperger and, and, and his lawyer, and, and part of it was, what if it wasn't Brad Raffensperger there? I mean, we've got to give this guy kudos for being willing to stand up to the president of the United States, to be willing to do his job, do his duty in the face of all of the flying monkeys of the right wing. And then all of this pressure coming from the head of his own political party and the president of the United States. I mean, this is not a small thing. I mean, how many people have been threatened with possible criminal prosecution by somebody from the Oval Office before? But what if it wasn't Brad Raffensperger there? What if it? What if the Secretary of State in Georgia was Marjorie Taylor Greene or Kelly Loeffler? Or what if it was the governor was somebody like a Matt Gates? Uh, same thing in Pennsylvania or in uh, in, in Arizona. What would happen? You, you know, this thing is bad, but it could have been so much worse if you had people like that, that second tranche of Republicans, you know, Trumpian Republicans in this position. I mean, we have been very, very lucky in a sense, don't you think? Because if it wasn't for, you know, the the people that are right there right now and their willingness to do things that are relatively courageous, I mean, I think quite courageous at this point. Um, this thing could have been, a. this thing is bad, but it could have been even worse. Don't you think? I think that's right. Um, and I mean, it's, it's notable that I believe it was reported this morning that Trump had tried to call Raffensperger 18 Eight. times before he reached them, which both is just an astonishing number. And it also raises the question of how many calls there have been that we haven't heard of. Yes. Um, but no, we, I we look, I have a Zoom call with like 300 legislators and kind of wonder what right. they were trying to cook up. On. Right. And so, look, I, I do think it's important to be clear that, you know, this will not succeed. Joe Biden will be the president. But you are very right that the reason it hasn't succeeded is because of the sort of civic mindedness of people like Raffensperger and for example, uh, Aaron Van Langeveld, who was the Michigan mm -hmm. member of the board of canvassers who basically refused to hold up on certifying the state's electoral vote Republican. Um, that said, I mean, I would be remiss in not noting that some of the lines, look, I'm glad that these people have drawn these lines in the sand and are standing on the right side of them. I will confess that some of the lines that they have drawn are a bit bewildering to me. Um, with Raffensperger in particular, I'm thinking of the fact that he has been 
very courageous in standing up to Trump's effort to swing the vote in Georgia after the fact. But he's also still going out there talking about, you know, the danger of ballot harvesting and, you know, out of state people trying to, you know, do all kinds of chicanery with Georgia's vote that are, you know, responding to an imagined threat of voter fraud does not exist. And, And then he's continued to do that. So clearly he's drawn some line between these sort of facetious claims of voter fraud uh, that he is willing to back on the one hand and sort of Trump's effort to overturn an election that's already happened on the other. Um, I'm glad he's drawn that line, uh, at least in this instance. I, I wish he would move it a little farther <laughs> over in the right direction. Uh, but it's an interesting and interesting, uh, in some ways encouraging and in some cases yeah. very troubling uh, thing to watch. It is encouraging that there are lines that can be that, that can be drawn where he's at least going, okay, no, we 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 didn't uh, we didn't scan the votes three times. No, they're not taking up the voting machines. Uh, no, these these ballots are not being shredded. No dead people didn't vote. Um, the the patience of all of the patience of all of these guys. So what do you think is gonna happen on Wednesday, January 6th. And I, I asked this because, you know, it, originally the question was, would there be at least one senator who would object? The answer is yes, obviously. So they're going to go into a debate. Um, w- one of the scary questions I have in my mind is how far Mike Pence is willing to go. Um, obviously, he's thrown in his lot with uh, some of these coup plotters. Um, would he go so far? I mean, he's supposed to he basically is a glorified letter opener, right? I mean, in, in, in on the Constitution. But what if he opens certificate bogus certifications from some of these states where uh, Trump electors claim that they were elected? Um, you know, the, the, where they claim that there are two slates of electors. There are not. You know, the the electors from every one of the fifty states has been legally certified. They were submitted on time in the proper way. There is no question about who the valid electors are. But if Trump wanted to make, I mean, if uh, if if Pence wanted to make trouble, right, he could open that second set of envelopes in some of the contested states as well. And then what the hell happens? So I'll confess that I'm I'm not an expert on the Electoral Count Act, which is the sort of famously confusing and vague statute that governs what's going to happen in Congress on January sixth. But I will say, look, like I said before. Um, the, there are experts out there on the Electoral Count Act, and God bless them. It's a really devilish yeah. piece of legislation. And uh, they all have said that at the end of the day, the votes will be counted and Joe Biden will be established as Correct. as the president-elect. So I think that, that that's important to sort of put out as an initial matter. Um, that said, look, we don't know what kind of chaos uh, these various Republicans will be able to sow in the meantime, you know, whether this will be just kind of like a one-off, you know, Josh Hawley raises his hand and gets his time to debate on the floor, or whether this is going to drag out all day long, Right. I think there there could be a lot of sound and fury. Um, and the difficulty for journalists and people commenta- commentating on this and writing about it is going to be both putting into context how bad and how dangerous this is, while also making very clear to the public that at the end of the day, this is a sideshow, right? That the, the danger is not 
that Trump will somehow hold on to the presidency. The danger is that, you know, the Josh Hawley's and Ted Cruz's and, you know, Mo Brooks's and Louis Gohmert's are all sowing the seeds for a long-term rejection of democracy by the Republican Party and an undermining of faith in the election. And so I do worry, well, I'm not worried that what they try on Wednesday will have any effect in the near term. I am absolutely worried that they're going to have a platform to make specious claims of voter fraud and further undermine faith in the election. Well, I think, process. and I think that's, and I, no, I think that, and that's the, the the case. But what I think is interesting is that Ted Cruz got the eleven other senators to sign on to this idea of a blue ribbon commission that would have an emergency audit, a ten day emergency audit, so that the fig leaf is, oh, we're not actually trying to overturn the election; we're just asking questions. When it is so transparently, it's so transparent, it reminds us what a charlatan. Ted Cruz is because first of all, this idea that you can do a, a federal, uh, you know, election audit of all of the states in ten days is just ridiculous. But then here's the other obvious flaw: Why would we think that Trumpists would believe anything that came out of the commission? I mean, if they reject the actual election results, if they ignore the rulings of every federal and state court that has looked at this, if they ignore the certification by all the Republican governors, if they ignore what Bill Barr, Trump's own attorney general, has said. If they ignore the results of the recounts and the audits, why do we think they believe the results of any commission? I mean, they are they are completely post fact at this point. So this whole notion, well, we're just asking questions. We just because people, you know, have these doubts, which is also bullshit. Because look, I mean, how, how did we get here? You have these, you know, right wing media and the folks in Trump world who have been peddling bogus stories for weeks. They've been lying about it. You have the legal team advancing one falsehood after another. And even though they've been slapped down by one judge after another, one court after another, you know, they, they stick with it. The lies are amplified on right wing media from, you know, One America Now to Newsmax to Mark Levin to The Federalist. And, and so, yeah, a lot of Trump supporters come to believe those lies. And now this argument is, well, because these people believe this false information, this is grounds for rejecting the votes of contested states. And, and by the way, I put in my newsletter this morning. The irony alert is the the whole, you know, uh, you know, fuck your feelings crowd now wants to overturn an election because of the feelings of Trumpist voters. Remember, you know, Ben Shapiro, great mind of the youth, said, you know, facts don't care about your feelings except here. So um, that whole idea of the commission is just it's ludicrous on the on, on its on its face. And I just wonder, how, you know, it's an indication that they're kind of just going through this performative motion at this point. I think that's right. Um, I mean, it, it's very reminiscent of Trump's habit of saying that, you know, a lot of people are saying mm -hmm. that and then blurting out an insane conspiracy theory. Right. And and it sort of allows Ted Cruz to pull this kind of more in sorrow than an anger shtick of saying, wasn't it terrible that people believe these terrible you know, these terrible, terrible things. And as you say, leaving out the fact that, of course, people believe these things because the president has been endlessly yelling about them for multiple months. Um, I think that the fact that, as you say, it is obvious at this point that there is literally nothing that could be done to convince, you know, mm -hmm. this, this group of Republican politicians, this group of voters that Trump really didn't win the election and that they should drop this gives away the game, right? Because 
again, if we go back to that division between sort of ambition and true believers, the true believers are going to continue to believe this all the way to the end of the road at this point. Yeah. I think that's clear. And, and that, but so therefore the, the ambitious um, Republican politicians can ride that as far as they like, but the end goal for the ambitious folks is not, you know, somehow proving that either that Trump won or that Biden won. It's just ultimately sowing doubt. Yeah. Um, and and it, that's the real goal here. Well, it's interesting that even people like Elise Stefanik basically are saying because there is doubt, you know, that, that that apparently trumps all of the actual hard evidence that we have. This whole mentality, all you have to do is raise questions. Well, of course, that we live in a world of disinformation and questions and conspiracy theories. And OK, so speaking of which, this is a little bit painful. Um as you know, I'm from Wisconsin. Senator Ron Johnson is our senior senior senator. He went on Meet the Press yesterday. This, by the way, is the day after he said he would vote against counting the votes of his own state. And I want to sort of put a call out to our historian, historically minded listeners. Is there ever been a, a U.S. senator that voted to disenfranchise the voters of his own state before leaving aside the Civil War? Because Ron Johnson is going to vote not to count Wisconsin's electoral votes, which is amazing. And he's up for re-election next year. Well, okay, this is a little bit painful, but this is a little bit from, from let me play a little bit of his, uh, his appearance on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. Let me ask you this, then why didn't you hold hearings um, about the 9-11 truthers? There's plenty of people who thought 9-11 was an inside job. So what you're basically I mean, saying Chuck, is that there's enough people who believe in conspiracy theories. I held hearings on what I figured was the most relevant issue. Are you going to do it? How about the moon landing? Obviously, this, are you going to hold hearings on that? When you, what I would like to hold hearings on, you know, what I was talking about, and why did we not spend hundreds of billions of dollars exploring early treatment? Why did we vilify doctors who had the courage to treat COVID patients, practice medicine, try and find available, cheap, repurposed drugs to do so? Why, why, why? I'd love to hold hearings on that. There are all kinds of things that I'd like to hold hearings on. You have to kind of pick and choose based on priorities. Right now, we have this election. We've got tens of millions of Americans that yeah. think this election was stolen. Stolen. We need to get to the bottom of it. Again, what's what's explained, we need to explain it, get that off the table. Uh, but we also have to acknowledge there are some real problems again, here. There's some issues that need to be explored you, and investigated. You got to ask yourself, when you tell people a million times that something was stolen or something was fraud and then they believe it, um, I think you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself why so many well, people. Well, Chuck, you need to look it. at your mirror and Senator Johnson. I've got to go. I appreciate you coming Russian on. Collusion you, with, with the Trump campaign of, hoax. That is what you did I, in the media. I, you carried that water for years. You destroyed the credibility can, of press. Senator not Johnson, I, other than other than crediting you for for coming on, I appreciate that because only two of your colleagues had the guts to say yes this weekend about this um, conspiracy theory that you're working on. Yeah. So at another point, uh, Todd says to him, uh, you're demanding an investigation on the grounds that are allegations of fraud. So essentially, you're the arsonist here. President Trump is the arsonist here. You started this fire. And now you're saying, whoa, look at this. Oh, my God. All these people believe what we told them because you didn't have the guts to tell the truth. The election was fair. And then one of Johnson's answer was this fire was started when you completely ignored, for example, our investigation of Hunter Biden. <laughs> so, I mean, there, 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 there you have it. You, you, you have senators 
And I got to tell you, that's painful and that's embarrassing. I mean, you know, Johnson embarrassed himself. He's embarrassed the state of Wisconsin. He's embarrassed the many of us who've ever supported him or said good things about him um, and the position he's taking right now. But you'll notice it's not based on any facts, any evidence whatsoever. It's just based on, you know, there's been lies out there. People believe those lies. And therefore, that's how I'm justifying this. I, I do think that this is one of the significances of this tape. Because it really just leaves these senators just hanging out there, that they're just basically lapdogs and front men for this naked attempt to overturn the election. I mean, Donald Trump with that tape just cut the knees out from under these guys to the extent that they even had knees left. You know, I think that's right. And yet the morning after the tape came out, unless I'm missing something, you know, I don't see Republican senators running for the exits. No. Right. You would expect to see them saying, you know, we, you know, we realize that the, this is a terrible mistake or you wouldn't really expect that, but that's what you want to see. But instead, right. I think that the strongest statement I've seen from, you know, any of the folks who are supporting this effort to contest the, the vote is from Senator Marsha Blackburn, who said that she thought the call was a bad idea. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, that's yeah. that's what we have. It's as going as far as you'd expect Marsha Blackburn to go. Um, Marsha Blackburn, who famously questioned the patriotism of Alexander Vindman, you know, solidifying her position as one of the most deplorable members of the Senate. No, I you, I don't think you're going to see anybody backing off from it, but I think that one thing it might have done is it might have shifted the um, the incentive structure, that there might have been more senators who figured, okay, let's go with the, uh, take the, the path of least resistance and just go along with Trump so we don't have the flying monkeys attack us. So I'm going to join with these guys. I think it might have stopped some of the momentum, uh, the lemming-like momentum of Republicans to sign on to this because now suddenly it's more embarrassing, um, more questionable. So I think it makes it easier for people like Mitch McConnell to maybe rein in some of the, you know, guys. You have Senator, I think Senator Wicker, Senator Cassidy, some of these other Republicans, you know, now going, yeah, we don't really want to be part of this. So I asked you the question before, what happens on January 6th? So let me just look at what happens on January 6th on the streets of Washington? How dangerous is this moment? Because, I, you know, not to engage in the libertarian panic, but, you know, you, you have the president of the United States who is feeding, fomenting these protests, which, of course, is everyone's right to protest. But he's also feeding this false optimism out there. And I wonder, what are these folks going to do when they realize that it's not going anywhere? Because, and I've said this over and over again. Do not underestimate the number of people out there who still do not believe that Joe Biden won the election. There was a story over the weekend of somebody who was talking to Republican voters in Georgia, and the reporter said that he had not found one Republican voter in Georgia who believed that Joe Biden uh, had won the election. And many of them thought that Trump would still be sworn in on January 20th. So how concerned should we be about violence this week? We're two days away from this. Yeah. So I live in Washington, D.C., and I, I've noticed that uh, our mayor has been essentially begging people not to go to the downtown area um, on January 5th and 6th, which presumably is the area where Trump supporters are going to congregate. And we do know, you know, that it can get pretty ugly. A couple of weeks ago, there was another gathering of Trump supporters, specifically, uh, mostly Proud Boys, um, in the downtown city area, and someone was stabbed. Um, and mm -hmm. there were plenty of street fights. So 
I don't want to underestimate how bad it could get. Um, I think that Trump has proven himself to be pretty uh, immune to people worrying that his rhetoric might cause violence and in fact sort of delight in that violence. Um, look, I don't, I don't want to, you know, yeah. go around making people afraid. I do think that everyone I know in DC is certainly planning to be careful um, and avoid, you know, the area around the Capitol building, but it is, I will say from as speaking, not as a, you know, as a journalist, but as a DC resident, it is striking to me how again and again, it feels like this city has really been taken away from the residents and sort of turned into Trump's playground. We had this happen uh, around the protests after George Floyd's killing when Trump sort of rolled up the national guard and really took over the streets um, and now we sort of have it again where groups of people just kind of descend on DC and, you know, march around and yell things about how great Trump is and, and make the city into their playground. Right, and which it's is, which is disturbing if, if it's a protest. But I was just seeing a tweet where the, the, the police have put up or authorities have put up signs basically telling people that, you know, guns are not legal in, yep. in, in downtown DC. Well, so what happens if people do show up with these guns? Um, as, as it seems very, very likely that they will. I, 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 look, I just, I think that sometimes we underestimate the amount of crazy out there. We underestimate the potential for violence. I read a lot of this stuff. I have to say it is, it, we use words like unhinged or extreme that, that doesn't really capture. Um, and I, 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 sometimes I do think that, you know, despite the accusation that we become, we overreact in some ways, I think we underreact to, to some of this. Um, and, and the president has fed this. In fact, he he's tweeted out how wild the demonstrations will be, or, you know, retweeted somebody saying everybody should wear body cams for what happens. I just, I just don't know. I think that, I think that his willingness to uh, do damage, break things uh, and burn things down on the way out can't be overstated. And in part, because I think that in his mind, he honestly believes that he should hold on to power and he will hold on to power. I don't know, by the way, I don't know what his exit strategy is. I mean, at, at what point does he leave the White House? I assume he leaves the White House. But at what? Uh, point, he, yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, look. If if he doesn't leave the White House by uh, the morning of or by eleven fifty nine p.m. on January twentieth, he he will be made to leave the White House, right? I think that there's he does not have a graceful exit strategy. I think that's become pretty clear, and I, I never really expected that he that he would. Um, but. Look, he's going to come out one way or another, whether sulking out the back door or kicking and screaming out the front. I suspect it will be more likely the former than the latter, but we'll find out. Yeah, it won't It won't be, even though they've been saying that the real election is January 6th, which is not true, of course, but he's been saying that. They, 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 won't, they won't stop this. So I assume that we're going to get into uh, more pardons uh, after, uh, after January 6th. Uh, do you think, one last exit question, do you think he will try to self-pardon? Uh, you know, I've been wondering about that myself. Um, at the end of the day, I don't think a self-pardon would be rational. Yeah. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I think that 
the real criminal liability that he faces when you think about not only potential crimes he may have committed, but also the willingness of the entity in question to actually bring charges is on the state level. I'm specifically thinking of New York State, uh, where there's a tax investigation into the Trump organization, um, rather than the federal level, because there are all kinds of really thorny, difficult political questions that a Biden administration is going to have to face about the wisdom of investigating, and if it comes to that, prosecuting a former president. Cy Vance, the Manhattan district attorney, doesn't face those political incentives. In fact, he arguably has incentives to push for prosecution. And so a self-pardon would not even touch that state-level liability. On the other hand, I would argue that a self-pardon would make it a lot harder for a Biden administration to essentially say, let bygones be bygones. Right. It almost dares them. It, 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 exactly. it, it, it almost forces them to force the issue. Exactly. And so I think that a self-pardon for that reason would be a really stupid move. That said, <laughs> that's a great argument for why Trump might want to do it, because, of course, really stupid moves that uh, overstretch the power of the presidency and backfire are really kind of his signature. So I... I would not be surprised, um, but I don't think it would be the smart move. If that no, makes sense. It, it wouldn't be the smart move. It wouldn't be the rational uh, move. But again, l- listening to his tape and just getting that glimpse into the way his mind works, the, the delusion, the denial of reality, the lack of ability to, to form a, a sort of a consistent line of, of logical thought Um also, who is he listening to? What are the adults in the room? I mean, it's one thing to get rid of Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood, but but now you have people like you know the the, the people who were on that 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 phone call. You know, the the Cleta Mitchells of the world. I mean, what was she thinking, being part of that phone call? Did she think this was a, a good idea? What what is the atmosphere that you have people like Mark Meadows and Cleta Mitchell who are willing to sit on a on a phone call, which is just batshit crazy, if not illegal, and certainly impeachable. I mean, that, this is what I don't understand about these folks. And it is, uh, that's the big question, whether they will behave um, ra- rationally. But we'll see what happens on January 6th. Uh, I have to say that the, the the number of Republicans willing to go along with, with this is, we, we ought to s- still be surprised if we're shocked, if not surprised, I can't get it quite right here. But the the full-on radicalization of some elements of the Republican Party, you know, watching some of these new freshman senators coming in and their lack of respect or allegiance to democratic norms um, is, uh, is, 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 a, is a frightening leading indicator of where we might be headed. Quinta Jurassic, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and being our first guest of 2021. Thank you for having me. I, I only wish it could have been a more cheerful conversation. Oh, it'll get better, right? I guess, please. I hope so. Uh, (laughs) Fingers crossed. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.